This episode is brought to you in part by the Choices Program. The Choices Program creates fantastic social studies materials that connect history with current issues. If you're a teacher, these are like print-and-go lesson plans that include enough materials and activities to fill an entire unit. They just so happen to be my favorite teaching resource of all time. Seriously, I tracked them down and asked them to collaborate because these lesson plans and teaching materials have gotten me through more than a decade of teaching. Check them out at choices.edu and use the code ANTI-SS or ANTI-SS for a 15% discount on your purchase. The discount does not apply to site licenses. All right, let's get to the show. It's 1968. The Tet Offensive has exposed the crisis in Vietnam. Dr. King has been assassinated. The anti-war movement is dividing both parties, but especially the Democrats, who are now trying to figure out who can take over now that LBJ has announced he's not running for re-election. Maybe Bobby Kennedy? Oh, wait, never mind. The social justice movements have fractured, leading some into armed resistance and others into drugs and the sexual revolution. White, middle-class Americans are tired. They're tired of everyone complaining. It's systemic racism this and unjust war that. Can't we all just be happy? Isn't it time we all just calmed down and got back to work? It's time for some tough love, and Nixon is the man to drag us out of the 1960s kicking and screaming. Today's episode is all about the 1970s, or if an entire decade were the middle child. This is Antisocial Studies. I'm Emily Glinkler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Now, before we start in earnest, a quick note that this episode is going to be woefully lacking in its disco content. But don't you worry, because you can go to patreon.com slash antisocial studies for an entire bonus episode all about disco. It's available right now. Highly recommend. Act one, President Nixon. All right, I've been foreshadowing this growing conservative backlash for a few episodes now, but Nixon is the one who's able to successfully capture all of these disparate groups and combine them into a political force. 1968 is the election, in my humble opinion, that begins a new era in American politics. From this point on, party affiliation is going to become increasingly more about a holistic feeling about American society, a vibe, than it is about specific policies. And that's not entirely true, and this shift happens gradually, but 1968 really lays the groundwork for the two parties to slowly push away from each other over completely different visions about where the United States is and where it should be heading. Democrats and Republicans used to be way more divided over geography and economic policy. I mean, remember the New Deal Democratic Coalition built by FDR? Basically, everyone but wealthy white business owners had something to gain from a large government spending money on job programs and social services. And because of this, the Republicans had been a minority party, especially in national politics, for the past few decades. But it really wasn't that big of a deal because party lines were fluid. Crossing the aisle was a good thing. Remember that the majority of both congressional Democrats and Republicans Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act, and the largest contingent to vote against it was Southern Democrats. But in the 1960s, national politics evolved to be about more than jobs, war, and taxes. The federal government had waded into debates about race and gender, among other things. They had, according to some, disrupted local schools with integration. They had decided that women should be accepted equally in society regardless of her marital status. The FDA had approved a birth control pill and decreed that even many private businesses couldn't discriminate on the basis of race. In my opinion, all of these are good developments, but they opened the floodgates to way more conversations about the role of the federal government. 
it was simpler, not necessarily better, but simpler when the government was just saying, ah, leave all these social issues up to the states and school boards. And to be clear, I mean, that stance is what allowed, for example, Jim Crow to fester for a century. But by the end of the 1960s, it seemed like most social issues had become fair game in national politics. So the debates got way more interesting and the disagreements got increasingly more personal. And we know this because we're living through the apex result of this trend right now. Looking back, I think this division might have been more clear if Bobby Kennedy had lived and been the young progressive looking to push America even further in the direction of societal change. But the Democrats in 1968 ended up with Hubert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president, who just wasn't really a particularly exciting candidate. And on the other side, the Republicans had good old Richard Nixon, a mainstay in national politics for 20 years at this point, right? I mean, after the chaos and protest and sometimes violence of the past few years, a lot of middle-class white Americans Americans just wanted everyone to chill out. I often imagine the activists and the progressive wing of the 1960s kind of like a rebellious teenager, full of righteous indignation and a desire to change things fast. Middle America, read white middle-class families, are kind of like the mom in this situation, right? Why can't we all just get along and have a nice dinner? If you keep acting up, just wait till your father comes home. And in this analogy, Richard Nixon is, of course, the ultimate dad. He wants everyone to quiet down, get to work, and let him read the newspaper in peace, right? Why are you always complaining, you rebellious kids? I give you food to eat, a roof over your head. If you've seen All in the Family, this analogy will seem particularly uninspired because it's literally just the setup of the show, with Archie Bunker as the family's resident Nixon stand-in. So in 1968, Nixon had a huge opportunity to build up a whole new Republican base, and he took it. He campaigned to an audience that he referred to as the mainstream, middle America, or the silent majority. The idea was that the activists and the liberals making so much noise were actually a small minority. Most good Americans are pretty happy with our country and don't think the government needs to keep legislating away all of our freedoms or state and local power. A more nefarious aspect of this plan is now known as the Southern Strategy. Republicans had finally figured out an easy way to peel white Southern conservatives away from that New Deal Democratic coalition. You just appeal to their fear of the rapidly changing America. Sure, the government helping farmers keep their land was one thing, but now you're telling me my kid has to go to school with those kids from the other side of town, and I have to pay that girl in my office the same as a man, even though she's not supporting a family at home? What about all these riots in the cities? Do we have no decency anymore? Nixon's campaign used veiled language and racist dog whistles to bring a lot of white Southern Democrats over. He championed law and order, which really meant an escalated police presence in certain parts of town. Nixon constantly brought up draft evaders, radical students, and organized crime on the campaign trail. He started talking about inner cities as dangerous, lawless places compared with the safety of the suburb. Nixon promised to appoint a Southerner to the Supreme Court and help turn the court in favor of, quote, the rights of law enforcement. He opposed court-ordered busing in schools. He named a Southerner, Spiro Agnew, as his VP. Nixon was basically saying, okay, we did what we needed to do as a country. We ended Jim Crow. We promised everyone voting rights. Fine. But we're done now. And it worked. But it's important to note that it barely worked. Like, Nixon defeated Humphrey by less than 1% of the vote. Now, in the tradition of naming presidential platforms with sweeping metaphors, Nixon declared a new federalism. Remember federalism? The sharing of power between a federal government and states? He wanted to reduce the size of the federal government and make it more efficient. 
In his view, federal funds should mostly be given to state and local agencies without so many strings attached so that they could have more control over how the money was spent. And he straight up just ended some of LBJ's Great Society programs. Like, he vetoed funding for HUD, Housing and Urban Development, and he just refused to release $18 billion in funds that were meant to go to the Office of Economic Opportunity. That was ultimately deemed unconstitutional, but the damage had already been done. So let's pause for a moment. I can feel all of us, myself included, painting Nixon with a really broad brush, right? Like, even in my own notes for this episode, I wrote, huh, so LBJ is Obama and Nixon is Trump? And no, actually, that's far too simplistic. Nixon is laying a lot of the groundwork that will be taken to an extreme in the Trump era. And when we get to Watergate, the comparisons are going to be even harder to ignore. But Nixon, like almost every historical figure, is incredibly complex, For example, did you know that Nixon reformed the nation's welfare system, proposing federal grants for families below the poverty line? His own party actually defeated that proposal in the Senate out of fear that a guaranteed income, the equivalent today would be about $12,000 per needy family, would turn us into a, quote, welfare state. But Nixon supported it. Nixon is also our most successful environmentalist president ever, like after Teddy Roosevelt, of course. Like, his administration oversaw the first Earth Day, the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. And now, was Nixon himself, like, a raging environmentalist? No, not really. But he did recognize that these were just fairly simple, easy issues to kind of score some political points. And the fact that he didn't see any of this as government overreach is an important note of how much our party system has changed and kind of degraded since then. Now, it's really ironic because LBJ wanted to focus on his domestic great society, but he got embroiled in a foreign war, whereas all Nixon wanted was to think about foreign policy, the great chess match of the Cold War, only to eventually be taken down by domestic politics and scandal. And to be clear, Nixon was really good at foreign policy. And I'm not saying that all of his foreign policy moves were good, necessarily. What I'm saying is that he was incredibly effective at charting a path for the U.S., both out of the Vietnam War and kind of into this late Cold War era. But first, a quick note about Henry Kissinger. When we talk about Nixon's foreign policy, we're really talking about Henry Kissinger's foreign policy. Kissinger was Nixon's Secretary of State and National Security Advisor, and he is... hmm controversial but highly effective. Basically, Kissinger's approach to foreign policy was it's strictly business. This is formally known as realpolitik, with the K at the end. This is often associated with, like, Machiavelli for context. But it's generally the idea that, like, we just need to do whatever needs to be done to accomplish the goal we're working toward, regardless of bigger philosophical or moral concerns. So, for example, if he's tasked with keeping more countries from falling into the socialist sphere— well, then he's going to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, it might mean he allows the U.S. to support brutal right-wing dictatorships like assassinating democratically elected leaders, but hey, at least Chile under Pinochet will be our ultra-capitalist ally, right? Of course, when Nixon came into office, the main foreign policy concern was the Vietnam War. And with Vietnam, Nixon and Kissinger were desperate. I mean, Nixon had campaigned on getting us out of the war, but even direct negotiations led by Kissinger were not getting the job done. Controversially, Nixon decided to secretly bomb the jungles where the Ho Chi Minh trails snaked. These trails allowed fighters and supplies from North Vietnam to sneak into the South. And Kissinger actually opposed the bombing because... Checks notes. Oh right, it's a war crime. Did I forget to mention that the jungles Nixon bombed were in neutral Cambodia? That's right. 
But over time, between Nixon's aggressive approach and Kissinger's negotiations, both the formal ones with representatives of the Viet Cong and the official South Vietnamese delegation and his secret talks with just North Vietnam, the U.S. eventually pulled out of the Vietnam War. And almost as soon as the U.S. was out, the South fell, and the entire country became a one-party communist state. It still is to this day. Again, this is another really good illustration of Kissinger's like realpolitik approach. His task was to get us out of the Vietnam War. And he did, right? His task was not to prevent Vietnam from becoming a socialist state, right? It's very, like, single-minded and myopic. Again, effective, but sometimes difficult to support. The U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam marked a huge shift in foreign policy. It's now known as the Nixon Doctrine, but it basically established that the U.S. would honor its alliances with military aid and training, but according to Nixon, we would, quote, no longer conceive all the plans, design all the programs, execute all the decisions, and undertake all the defense of the free nations of the world. His argument is somewhat similar to what Trump's is going to be, right? The U.S. has been footing the bill and defending freedom for a long time, and we need to scale back and let some of our allies step up to the plate, even if that means leaving Vietnam and letting it fall to a socialist regime. And Nixon found allies in really unlikely places. Most famously, he and Kissinger orchestrated the beginning of formal relations with communist China. In 1972, as the deadly Cultural Revolution was raging, Nixon became the first president to visit China and to meet with Mao Zedong since its communist revolution 20-plus years earlier. And this was an example of the strategic genius and controversy behind the Nixon-Kissinger approach, right? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Soviet relations with China had been souring for the last decade, and Nixon saw an opportunity to take a critical ally away from the USSR. Now, of course, this doesn't mean the U.S. became friends with China, definitely not, but we did start to create this weird frenemy-like relationship that continues to this day. At the same time, Nixon and Kissinger, I really should just start calling them Nixinger, was promoting an easing of tensions with the Soviet Union known as detente. Part of the reason the Soviets actually came to the negotiating table with the U.S. was because they saw Nixon opening up relations with China. Again, he's playing chess on a global scale. So Nixon also became the first U.S. president to visit the USSR since World War II. He eventually signed SALT I, the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty that put a temporary freeze on the creation of new nuclear weapons, and it allowed for more trade and exchange of scientific information between the two Cold War enemies. Side note, this is just like a personal pet peeve. Most people call these the SALT treaties, and it really drives me crazy because the T in SALT stands for treaty. So what you're saying is the SALT treaty, you're saying the Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty Treaty. It's like a D-Day, Day-Day situation all over again. Okay, so of course, detente and handshakes between the U.S., Soviet Union, and China didn't really mean much for the smaller countries still impacted by the Cold War, like proxy wars and coups were still raging. But this was an important step for the United States away from the fear and anxiety of some oncoming Cold War apocalypse of the 1950s and 60s. If I'm being honest, Nixon's presidential resume is kind of jam-packed full of impressive firsts and accomplishments. And if we were judging based on effectiveness, he would definitely be towards the top of my list of U.S. presidents, just like setting goals and saying, this is what I want to do as president, and then getting it done. But of course, environmentalism and Cold War realpolitik are not what first comes to mind when most Americans hear the name Richard Nixon. I am not a crook. 
Before we jump into the Watergate of it all, just a few notes about Nixon, corruption, and the state of politics by the 1970s. First of all, Nixon himself was no stranger to controversy. Like, back in 1952, Nixon was running as the vice presidential candidate on Eisenhower's ticket. Remember, by this point, he'd already established himself as a prominent figure in the Republican Party thanks to his activity investigating suspected communists in the State Department, most famously Alger Hiss. But just six weeks before the election, Nixon was forced to address a political scandal. A fund had been set up by some of his political backers that was accused of misusing money to reimburse Nixon for his own political expenses. And at risk of being kicked off the ticket, Nixon delivered a 30-minute address on television to defend himself. He actually just used this opportunity as like a stage to attack his detractors, painting this as a slanderous assault on his character. And Nixon would become famous for this tactic. An attack on his character was always his enemies trying to take him and the Republican Party down. His speech was full of rhetorical questions designed to fuel skepticism and to urge his supporters to come out in droves to combat this attack. And the most famous moment came when he said that there was one gift from a supporter that he was going to keep, a black and white cocker spaniel that his kids had named Checkers. But I'd also like to remind us all that at this point, there weren't really any campaign finance laws at the time. And politics has always been fairly dirty. I mean, need I remind you of Johnson's Senate race in 1948? Allegedly. The problem was that Nixon had made himself famous for attacking government corruption, and so it did not look good that he might be giving special favors in exchange for contributions to this personal fund. The 1950s to the 1970s was an era of massive change in the technology of communication. Over this period, most families got a television in their home. There were nightly news broadcasts constantly looking for breaking news. It's not that politicians all of a sudden became corrupt. It's that all of a sudden the public had access to way more information than ever before. And a similar trend has been happening over the past 20 years with the internet and social media, right? Like, politics isn't crazier than before. We just now know so much more. For example, we can watch House deliberations live on C-SPAN like we're watching reality television. Okay, but Nixon also was definitely a magnet for shady characters looking to personally benefit from political power. I mean, his vice president, Spiro Agnew, had to resign because of felony charges of tax evasion connected to his time as governor of Maryland. The claims were that he had been getting kickbacks, even up to his time as vice president, from contractors who he helped get deals with the government while he was in office. The point of all this... Well, the political landscape of the early 1970s looked kind of incredibly similar to ours today. Civil rights and Vietnam had dramatically divided the country into liberal and conservative camps. The Republican Party had been in the minority nationally for so long that they were using strategies to target small groups of powerful voters, in this case, white Southern Democrats, instead of trying to appeal to the broad majority. And by this point, there was plenty of evidence that the government was often lying to its citizens. In 1969, the public learned about the horrific My Lai massacre in Vietnam that had happened a year earlier. In 1971, Daniel Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers, which was an extensive document compiled by the Department of Defense on the government's involvement in Vietnam. Through that document, it became very clear that the U.S. government had been lying to the public and Congress for years about the extent of our involvement in Vietnam. And most of these realizations came not from elected officials looking to clean up their own environment, but from investigative journalists. So now with all of that context, let's get to Watergate. Here's the basic overview. During the 1972 election, a group of five men were caught with wiretapping equipment trying to break into the Democratic National Committee's headquarters at the Watergate office complex. 
That's why it's called Watergate. It's just the office building they were trying to break into. Young journalists at the Washington Post, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein began investigating, and they eventually uncovered a massive network of political operatives and a secret slush fund of money that was being used to intimidate and attempt to spy on Nixon's political enemies. Basically, they discovered a secret bank account that they couldn't trace that was paying off these burglars, and they then traced those payments to other people who had been essentially trying to intimidate and silence some of Nixon's opponents. Now, Nixon didn't necessarily have any direct involvement in the fund or in the various crimes committed by people being paid by the fund, but if he didn't know at the time about the attempt to break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters, which... I don't know, seems unlikely that he wouldn't have any idea. He definitely learned about it after the fact and then actively lied about it. Actually, Nixon attempted to use his power as president to cover it all up. And honestly, you really should just go listen to the entire season of the Slow Burn podcast that walks through the Watergate scandal. It's incredible. But here are a few other details that make it even more interesting. One of the reasons why Woodward and Bernstein decided to investigate what originally seemed like a run-of-the-mill burglary attempt was because of who the burglars were. So one of the men caught at the Watergate complex was a former CIA agent. Like, why would he be stooping so low in this break-in? And he wasn't just ex-CIA. James McCord, that was his name, was also the current head of security for the Republican National Committee and Nixon's re-election committee. Like, I guess he just took a real hands-on approach to his job. Side note, the Committee for the Re-Election of the President made the acronym CREEP. Like, come on, Nixon, you can't name your corrupt political re-election committee CREEP, you creep. So besides this ex-CIA and current Nixon operative being involved in the break-in, three of the burglars were Cuban refugees, and at least two of them had previously been involved in helping the CIA try to overthrow the Castro regime. Remember the Bay of Pigs disaster? Well, at least one of the Watergate burglars was there. The burglars had been paid out of a secret fund that Woodward and Bernstein were eventually able to trace to, wait for it, Nixon's attorney general. That's right. The head of the Justice Department was also the one running the secret illegal slush fund that was paying out checks to people to break in and wiretap the Democratic Party in an election year. So yeah, Nixon didn't want any of this getting out. Even though he repeatedly assured the public that the White House had no involvement whatever in this particular incident, and he won re-election by one of the largest margins in history five months after the break-in. Now, I'm not going to go through the step-by-step unraveling, but what we know now is that Nixon was actively using the power of the presidency to try to cover up his team's involvement in Watergate. That's where he gets himself in trouble. White House officials destroyed incriminating documents. They gave congressional investigators false testimony. The White House, under the direction of Nixon, actually asked the CIA to stop the FBI investigation into the source of the money paid to the burglars. Like, this part is especially egregious, right? Nixon is clearly using his elected position as president to use the CIA, an organization committed to thwarting foreign threats to national security, as his own personal intimidation team against the investigative side of the Justice Department, also part of his executive branch. This really up to this point was the most tenuous that our system of checks and balances had ever been in U.S. history. Hold my beer, says a young Trump watching all of this happen. But the question became, what happens when the Justice Department is investigating its own boss, or actually its bosses, right? Both the Attorney General and the President were involved. 
Between investigative reporters led by Woodward and Bernstein of the Washington Post and multiple congressional investigations, the story eventually came to light. And it should be noted that some officials within the executive branch helped the investigations along, although they had to do it secretly to avoid punishment by Nixon. FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt secretly leaked information to Woodward and Bernstein. At the time, they used the very unfortunate alias Deep Throat. Let me tell you, if you need to get a bunch of half-asleep teenagers to pay attention to the rest of your lecture, just casually mention Watergate informant Deep Throat. Works every time. By 1973, the burglars, including former CIA officer James McCord, had agreed to testify to the Senate committee. That summer, confessions flooded the news. Presidential counsel John Dean confessed that the former attorney general had actually ordered the break-in. He wasn't just the name on the bank account. He was the one orchestrating it. And he testified that Nixon had afterward taken part in the cover-up. Nixon continued to deny any involvement. He actually called the investigation a political witch hunt until a White House aide named Alexander Butterfield confirmed the existence of a taping system in the White House. You see, Richard Nixon himself had ordered that all of his conversations as president should be taped to help him write his memoir after he left office. The ego, it gets you every time. So, of course, when Congress asked the president to hand over the tapes, he said, no, thank you. Well, more officially, he claimed executive privilege. Executive privilege is a very real but very vague legal principle that basically just says that the president is allowed to shield some documents and conversations from broader investigation if they're a threat to national security. But, like, who gets to decide which information is privileged? Well, I don't know. We're still trying to figure that out. At this point, a special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, had been hired by Congress to investigate this whole thing. He's like the Robert Mueller of Watergate. He took Nixon to court to get the tapes, and in return, Nixon ordered his attorney general to fire Cox. Now, this attorney general was a new one. It was not John Mitchell, who is currently being investigated for the slush fund. But this new attorney general refused and resigned, and a lower official eventually did fire Cox as part of what's called the Saturday Night Massacre. Side note, Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, had resigned just 10 days before this for his own charges of criminal conspiracy, bribery, extortion, and tax fraud. Like, you think the news is crazy now? That was an insane two weeks. Okay, yada, yada, yada. The chaos and the unraveling continues for another year. And at some point in that year, Nixon gives what is now possibly his most famous speech. And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I could say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Eventually, the Supreme Court steps in and has to get involved in the most hilariously named court case, the United States v. Nixon. Within the same week in late July 1974, now like two years after the break-in, the Supreme Court ordered Nixon to hand over the relevant tapes and Congress initiated articles of impeachment. A few weeks later, a tape is released that clearly shows Nixon and his chief of staff, Haldeman, 
forming a plan to block the investigation. It's known as the smoking gun tape, and it is the final nail in Nixon's presidential coffin. Essentially, this is the tape where it becomes very clear that they're like explicitly talking about the Watergate break-in after it happened, and Nixon is clearly exploring all of these options with his chief of staff. Like, can we use the FBI? Can we use the CIA? How much money do we need to pay them off? It's just, it cannot be more explicit that he was using his power as president to cover up this investigation. So facing impeachment on August 9th, 1974, Nixon resigned the presidency. And with that, the impeachment automatically ends. Remember, impeachment is not a trial. It's basically an internal investigation into whether a government official should be able to keep their job. But even after Nixon was done being president, there were tons of potential avenues for him to be taken to court now as a civilian. But just one month after Nixon left office, his successor, Gerald Ford, granted him a full pardon. As a historian, I understand why Ford pardoned Nixon. Like, the nation had been through so much. I mean, remember the three million episodes it took me to get through the 1960s, right? Nixon was supposed to be the law and order president that would calm the chaos. And Gerald Ford worried that if the nation had to watch its former president go through a years-long criminal trial and potentially serve prison time, it would just be too much. But like... A lot of people disagreed, right? To a lot of Americans, this was just the icing on the top of the corrupt government cake. Like, Nixon wasn't going to face any legal consequences for his actions, and we were all just supposed to move on. For what it's worth, Congress did pass a slate of new laws to address all of the legal loopholes that we discovered throughout the Watergate scandal, right? The Federal Campaign Act Amendments of 1974 limited campaign contributions, and it set up an independent agency to enforce campaign finance laws. The Ethics in Government Act required financial disclosures by high government officials across all branches. The FBI Domestic Security Investigation Guidelines Act restricted the FBI's ability to gather political intelligence, potentially on, you know, opponents of the president. And Congress laid out a formal process for appointing independent counsel in case they were ever forced again to independently investigate and prosecute high government officials. But I'm sure we won't ever need that again, they all said. Now, I can't overstate how big of a deal Watergate was. Like, we are all just so jaded in our current political dystopia that often my students learn about the Watergate break-in and then they go, that was it? But this was the biggest scandal the U.S. government had ever faced, and it was the greatest challenge to our constitutional protections that was built in by Madison to keep one branch from exerting dictator-level power over the others. And it worked. But it also was a full-on political conspiracy theory that ended up being 100% true, right? Actually, in many ways, the real story ended up being worse than the general public thought. And there's a reason that the 1970s became the high point or the low point for conspiracy theories. The public had at least a solid decade of evidence that the government had been lying to them about Vietnam and Watergate for sure, right? It's easy to see why so many people said, like, you know what? Maybe we should look back into Kennedy's assassination, and while we're at it, did we actually land on the moon in 1969, or was that the government lying to us to win the space race in a Hollywood studio? I mean, to be clear, we did land on the moon. You should go watch the Mythbusters episode all about it, but whatever. It's easy to see how especially younger Americans had shifted. At the beginning of the 1960s, the younger generation was bright-eyed and hopeful. They elected a young, handsome president and were riding buses into the Jim Crow South and holding sit-ins and folk concerts on college campuses. 
But by the mid-1970s, those young hippies were gone, and in their place was a new generation of young people, jaded, distrustful of authority figures, and cynical about the possibility that politics could fix any of their problems. They're like a disco version of Gen Z. Act three, the end of the big name presidents, for now. As far as a historical narrative, the 1970s are a mess. And that's kind of the point. If we think of the past few decades from the 1930s to the 1960s as a liberal era, and then the upcoming decades of the 80s to today as a conservative era, then the 1970s are this really weird point where these two fronts meet and mix and create chaos. In a lot of ways, I think of the 1970s as this classic middle child. And Nixon, in a lot of ways, is really the epitome of this. He's a Cold War conservative who courts Southern Democrats with racist dog whistles, while also ending the Vietnam War, easing tensions with our enemies, and passing a ton of environmental protections? Like, what? What even are you? And beyond Nixon himself, the main story of the 1970s is the economy, And this is disappointing because you know how much I hate talking about the economy. So as always, I'm going to go watch Crash Course U.S. History with John Green, try to figure out what the heck stagflation is, and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back. Here's what I understood. So in some ways, an economic decline in the 1970s was kind of inevitable. We'd been in a boom for a really long time, but there are a few things that definitely didn't help. For one, as Americans moved into more white-collar jobs, like thanks, GI Bill, and as New Deal labor protections started to make blue-collar jobs more costly relative to other countries, manufacturing jobs started moving overseas. In some ways, we actually created our own competition by subsidizing the defense industries of places like Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Like in Japan, for example, after we defeated them in World War II, we very graciously wrote their constitution for them and included a section that said that they could not have a standing military anymore. It was okay. We told them the U.S. military will protect you instead. And there are like many things wrong with that, like imperialism much, right? But it did free up Japan to spend all the money that it had been spending on their military industry and shift it to manufacturing electronics and cars. A few decades later, Americans are buying Hondas instead of Fords. 1971 was the first time in the 20th century that the U.S. had an export trade deficit. We imported more goods than we exported. And Nixon took us off the gold standard, which was supposed to help this somehow, I think maybe to make our currency more flexible relative to other countries so that we could control prices better. Sounds right. But in a lot of ways, it just made it more unstable. The other problem was a series of oil crises out of the Middle East. First, in 1973, OPEC placed an oil embargo on any country that had supported Israel during the recent Yom Kippur War. This included the UK, Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, and the United States. Over the course of five months, the price of oil shot up 300%, causing what's now known as an oil shock. Beyond crippling parts of the U.S. economy in the short term, it also prompted many Americans to buy smaller, more fuel-efficient cars that were made in, oh, that's right, Japan. So really, by the mid-1970s, right, as Nixon is leaving the presidency and poor Gerald Ford is coming in, the U.S. was in an economic crisis so unique that it just required a new word, stagflation. Hey, at least we were innovating economic disasters, right? Basically, jobs, wages, and production 
none of those were growing. Our economy was stagnant. But normally, when that is happening, prices aren't also going up. But in this case, partly because of global events, they were. So we had a stagnant economy plus inflation. Stagflation. Now, according to John Green, this situation is one of the root causes of modern-day inequality. Like, real wages didn't increase for the next 20 years. Manufacturing jobs were either going away entirely or they were starting to decline in their prestige and benefits. Basically, a lot of the middle class was getting pushed further down the socioeconomic ladder because your blue-collar job just isn't worth what it used to be. So what did our federal government do about stagflation? Eh. Not a lot, and that's not for lack of trying, but this is the first glimpse of how much American politics had changed since the 1930s. When the Great Depression hit, most sides of the political spectrum were able to rally together and support FDR's New Deal. Like, we gotta do something. But now, in the post-1960s era of growing partisanship, it was a lot harder for each side to agree on how best to solve the problem, or even just to agree to try anything. I mean, remember, a lot of FDR's strategy was just to throw a ton of programs at the wall and see which one stuck. That wasn't going to happen anymore. Gerald Ford came up with a snazzy acronym, WIP Inflation Now, or WIN. And like, he tried to go the laissez-faire conservative financial approach, like let's cut taxes and reduce regulations, but he didn't have the support of Democrats in Congress or anyone else, really. You have to remember, Ford was the only president in U.S. history who wasn't elected even to the vice presidency, right? He just took over for Spiro Agnew after he had to resign in disgrace. If you're wondering, wow, how much more are we going to talk about Gerald Ford? The answer is, we're done. That was it. Sorry, Gerald. When Jimmy Carter, a peanut-farming evangelical Democrat from Georgia, was elected, he actually followed through on some of the policies that Ford had been attempting. In a significant move away from New Deal Democratic policies, Jimmy Carter cut government spending, he deregulated certain industries, like trucking and the airlines most notably, and he supported the Fed as they raised interest rates. All of this was an attempt to get inflation under control while also jumpstarting the economy. And it's basically a small preview of trickle-down economics. Lessen the tax burden and expensive regulations on businesses in the hopes that some of those savings will be transferred down the ladder in the form of new jobs. This is another sign of how much our politics are changing since FDR's New Deal. Notice that even a Democratic president, Jimmy Carter, is starting to have to appeal to a more conservative base. This is evidence of the success of Nixon's Southern strategy, right? Yeah, we can have a Democratic president from Georgia, but he's not going to be able to be as liberal or progressive, especially with like economic policy as he would have been a few decades ago. Jimmy Carter really faced a lot of problems as president, and some of them were of his own making, but others were almost entirely out of his control, and he kind of just got blamed for them. Now, time seems to have thoroughly proven that Jimmy Carter is just a genuinely good human being. But President Carter really struggled with the politicking aspect of being president, and maybe that's partly because he was such a decent, like, fairly normal person, whatever that means. He really tried to pull an FDR and convince Americans that if they just all trusted each other and believed in the economy, they could start to pull themselves out of this crisis. But instead of the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, Jimmy Carter kind of like blamed Americans for a quote, crisis of confidence that was rooted in American values of individualism. And I mean, he wasn't necessarily wrong, but when people are struggling to put food on their table, it's probably not super helpful for your president to basically say, it's your own fault. After this one speech, he lost 20 points in polls of his favorability. 
He just wasn't really great at like the politic messaging aspect of it. But he also was dealing with full-blown international crises. Like, for one, there was a second oil shock caused by the 1979 Iranian Revolution. And Jimmy Carter's decision to allow the Shah, this was this pro-Western dictator who had just been overthrown, to allow him to come to the U.S. instead of facing trial and most likely execution at home, created another international crisis. And yeah, the Shah was already dying and Carter was just letting him come get cancer treatment. But to the new Islamic regime, this was another example of the U.S. backing corrupt rulers at the expense of the Iranian people, which is not wrong, by the way. So a group of rebels stormed the U.S. embassy in Tehran and took 52 Americans hostage. Carter's administration tried everything, from negotiations to a failed rescue attempt that left eight U.S. service members dead. In the end, the new Iranian government released the hostages on their own terms, the day Carter left office and Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. The pettiness was just off the charts. In the same year as the Iranian Revolution, 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. This is one of the biggest military maneuvers of the entire Cold War. The Soviet war in Afghanistan would last the next decade and would eventually be a huge reason for the Soviet Union's collapse. Think of their war in Afghanistan like our war in Vietnam. But it prompted Carter to establish his own Cold War doctrine. And here's a quote from his 1980 State of the Union address. Let our position be absolutely clear. An attempt by any outside force to gain control of the Persian Gulf region will be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America, and such an assault will be repelled by any means necessary, including military force. Again, the chaos of politics in the 1970s, right? You have hardcore anti-communist Nixon going and shaking hands with Mao Zedong and visiting the Soviet Union. And then you have like evangelical Southern Democrat peanut farmer sitting here saying like the Persian Gulf is basically ours and we will defend it by any means necessary. What a wild time. Now, this speech was really meant to be a deterrent from the Soviets thinking that they could just keep pushing for more territory in the oil-rich Middle East. Basically, Carter's saying, just because we're in this current era of detente and salt, salt treaties, doesn't mean we aren't still willing to defend our interests around the globe. And while we don't end up really needing to use this threat during Carter's presidency, it is an important precedent about the U.S. role in the Middle East. Insert foreshadowing music here. So, was Jimmy Carter a good president? At this point, we should be realizing that this question is not incredibly helpful. Like, depending on who you ask, for example, Richard Nixon could be one of our more effective presidents or the worst president in American history, and they could both be right. But to attempt to answer this, Carter is definitely a president who ages well. I don't just mean that literally. Like, at the time of recording, he's 98 years old and currently probably sheetrocking a home for a family in need, I'm assuming. He struggled with some crises that most Americans would have also struggled with as president, like stagflation was a new economic situation that we're still struggling to figure out how to resolve, for example. And he had really no control over Islamic revolutions in Iran or Soviet invasions of Afghanistan. Carter also attempted to be an environmentalist president, maybe even more earnestly than Nixon did. After multiple oil shocks, he made a lot of attempts to lessen our reliance on foreign oil. Besides installing solar panels at the White House, very ahead of his time, he also created the Department of Energy. Now, not all of his moves would be commended by modern environmentalists, right? He deregulated the domestic oil industry, and he also invested in nuclear energy. But again, a disaster somewhat out of his control derailed some of these plans. In 1979, man, what a bad year that was for Jimmy Carter. 
a nuclear reactor on Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania melted down, causing kind of reasonable fears over his administration's decision to promote nuclear energy as the way of the future. This is a terrible crisis for nuclear energy that's only going to be really like supplanted a few years later by the Chernobyl disaster. Okay, the one area, though, in which Jimmy Carter was just straight up good was human rights. And that's a pretty great thing to be really good at, in my opinion. In his inaugural address, he said, quote, Our commitment to human rights must be absolute. So after decades of Cold War secret maneuvering and destabilization, Carter took a different approach. He cut off U.S. support for Argentina's military dictatorship that was currently engaging in a brutal campaign to punish enemies of the state, like it was so bad that the conflict is literally just called the Dirty War. The U.S. also gave Panama control over the Panama Canal. This is a decision that was very unpopular at the time, but now seems fair enough, especially if you're not a big fan of, like, colonialism. Carter appointed civil rights leader Andrew Young as U.N. ambassador, making him the first black U.N. ambassador in U.S. history. What else? Oh, yeah, he kind of achieved peace in the Middle East. I mean, sort of. So Jimmy Carter hosted 12 days of secret negotiations at the presidential retreat Camp David between Israel and Egypt. These were the two major forces in the Arab-Israeli wars that had been plaguing the Middle East for like the last 30 years. Ultimately, the Camp David Accords established peace between Israel and Egypt. Egypt became the first Arab state to formally recognize Israel's right to exist, while Israel, for the first time, removed Israeli settlements and traded away some of the land it had won in previous conflicts. So this agreement did not create a peaceful Middle East. I mean, obviously, like, do you follow the news? Many other Arab countries were furious with Egypt. They were kicked out of the Arab League for the next decade. But removing Egypt, who was at this point the most influential Arab nation in the region from future conflicts, did at least make other Arab nations less willing to go to war with Israel on their own. And my main point is just that it's incredibly impressive that this peanut farmer from Georgia was able to bring two historic enemies to the table and walk away with a peace agreement. Like, if you've seen that episode of The West Wing, you know how hard it is. All right, so what were the 1970s all about? They were a decade of transition as we moved from the political consensus of the New Deal and the national activism of the 1960s to a new period in American history. The 1980s will be the dawn of a conservative era. We're going to break down the Keynesian economics of big government spending and social reform to create a leaner federal government that would leave more decisions and potential reforms to individuals and market forces. Even though we didn't talk about it very much in this episode, it's kind of fitting that the 1970s often gets distilled down into drugs and disco, two cultural forces intended to distract young people, often disillusioned by a government that's been proven to be corrupt and communities that have been divided over civil rights and other moral issues that are now part of the political discourse. In some ways, I think the 2020s might be a decade similar to the 1970s. Between divisive presidents and Russian invasions, lingering systemic racism and debates about women's bodies, political debates over moral issues that often divide families, we're all exhausted and jaded and don't know how we'll find anything we can all agree on anymore. We're definitely in another era of transition now, just like they were in the 1970s. But while we're not sure what's coming next, I can tell you that in our podcast... It's about to be morning in America to be continued.
Thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, the best way is to go join patreon.com slash antisocial studies. There you will get bonus episodes. You're going to get invites to a lot of virtual learning sessions that I'll be hosting with my teacher friend over the next few months. Or if you don't want to join Patreon, just share this podcast with as many people as you know and go like and subscribe and give it a good review wherever you get your podcasts.